This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on supporting clients on medication-assisted therapies. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Today, we're going to define medication-assisted therapy because it's not just methadone anymore. We're going to explore barriers to treatment, identify benefits of medication-assisted therapy, Explore the effects of opioids on depression, anxiety, pain, and PTSD. Explore pain management with people on medication-assisted therapy. And identify the side effects of medication-assisted therapy and interventions to help people live their highest quality of life. What's our goal? As clinicians, what is our goal? We want to help people live a high quality of life, which means we need to help them reduce their symptoms of depression and anxiety, including agitation, sleep disruption, anhedonia, fatigue, and feelings of worthlessness and guilt. We want to keep them alive. You know, that's a good thing. We want them to be relatively pain-free, remembering that as depression and anxiety go up, pain tends to go up, and as pain goes up, depression and anxiety go up. So there's a bi-directional relationship. Unfortunately, it's a positive bi-directional relationship. We want them to be as independent as possible. When people are struggling with clinical depression or significant pain and rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, they may lose a level of independence if they can't get that pain under control. We want to help them improve their interpersonal relationships, which we know tend to be disrupted significantly by addictive behaviors, as well as chronic pain. We want them to be financially secure. They need to be able to hold down a job. And when people are in chronic pain, it's harder for them to be be in attendance as much, um, and their productivity tends to go down. And when people are addicted to something that is, you know, not controlled, when they're addicted to something like heroin or fentanyl, they're likely not showing up at work or being as productive as they really need to be. So we want them to be able to get to work and hold jobs. There are tens of thousands of people on medication-assisted therapy that hold gainful full-time employment, and you would never know that they were on those medications. There are others, you know, whose dosing may not not be right, or they may be supplementing their dosing that you can kind of get an idea. But a lot of people, the goal of medication-assisted therapy is to reduce the impact of um, heroin and fentanyl and help people find a way to reduce their cravings so they can move towards pure recovery, if you want to use that word. I don't I don't like that word either. Um, And we want them to be productive members of society to their ability. What does that mean? We want them to be able to purchase things and, you know, pay their bills and participate in neighborhood activities and be good parents and do all this other stuff. And if they are in chronic pain, if they are clinically depressed, or if they are addicted, then that is probably going to negatively impact their level of, quote, productivity. So let's take a look more at this. Clients must 
first, in order to achieve these goals, enter treatment. They have to stay in treatment long enough to get through any post-acute withdrawal syndromes caused by switching to medication-assisted therapy. Methadone, suboxone, buprenorphine, um, those are not exactly the same thing, if you will, as heroin or fentanyl. And they're not getting the same dose in order to get the high feeling. Therefore, you also may have certain post-acute withdrawal syndromes such as confusion and irritability and that sort of thing. Now, if you're working with a good clinic, the detox process or the switch over to medication-assisted therapy is relatively, and I use that term loosely, relatively painless um, because the doctor will gradually step them down from where they are to a maintenance-level dose. During this period, when we need people to stay in therapy, we need their neurotransmitters to balance out. We need their dopamine system to recover. We need their glutamate system to recover. Serotonin, need it to recover. Everything is kind of out of whack. So if we can help people ease this transition then and, and not go back to using heroin or fentanyl or something illicit, then we're more likely going to be able to help them achieve sustained recovery. We need to get them to stay in treatment long enough to address biopsychosocial issues that trigger or maintain their illicit drug use. And I use the acronym SPACE. Social issues, their friends, who they're living with, the relationship issues that they may be having as a result of their addiction. physical issues, including hepatitis or HIV or reduced immunity, or the list goes on. Affective issues. We are going to learn that opioids are actually serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so they increase serotonin just like your SSRIs do, and they're also uh, glutamate um, agonists, so they're increasing an excitatory neurotransmitter. This is interesting for us to know. And cognitive, when people are using, they are typically um, in less of a positive frame of mind and they may have a more negative um, externally locus of control attitude sort of thing. So we want to help them address their cognitive distortions. And environmental issues, if they are living in a drug-infested area, if their roommates are using in front of them, if they are working on a crew where people are actively using drugs, either on, on duty or after hours, all of those things may need to be addressed so they are not being regularly exposed to triggers. So think about this. And medication-assisted therapy gets a bad rap, partly because people don't understand exactly what it does. And yes, if it is misused, if it is diverted, used in extra doses if it is combined with other drugs yes people can get high off of it um or while they're on it but using it as prescribed they're not going to get a high from it Um, likewise do we have biases or do you have biases toward clients who take antidepressants my guess would be nobody in this chat chat room nobody in this in this who's listening to this does you know We work with people who are on antidepressants all the time. You know, not a big deal. We recognize that some people need the medication to help balance out their neurotransmitters to help them improve their mood and or address compulsive behaviors. Do we have biases towards people who take benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax and 
any of the others. It concerns me when I see that, but I also know people who that's worked very well for, for them because they have sporadic acute episodes of anxiety. So if it's being used as prescribed, you know, I personally don't have a bias towards them. You have a bias towards clients who take opioids or gabapentin for chronic pain. I worked with uh, veterans for a long time, and a lot of veterans take a lot of opioids because they have a lot of pain. And for some people, they've tried the other first-line interventions, and it hasn't worked to control the breakthrough pain enough. Some people need to be on some sort of pain control because they have some serious injury or illness that causes excruciating chronic pain. So do I have biases towards those clients? If they're taking it as prescribed and it's being monitored by, the, by a doctor, I personally don't have an issue with it. Would I love to see an alternative out there? Yes, I certainly would. But there isn't one right now. And um, yes, gabapentin is often used for uh, neuropathic pain, and uh, it is, you know, it's not an opiate, opioid, um, but recognizing that we, we see people who have chronic pain that start taking medication that they may be on for the rest of their life because of a chronic condition. And as generally, I would think that most of us aren't going to hold that against them. If that's what the doctor's prescribing, we may not you know, we may see that there are some dangers to it, but when we weigh the benefits, um, we see that they might, you know, actually balance out. But when we talk about antidepressants, methadone is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. If somebody is self-medicating with opioids, and because opioids are a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, then they may be taking, they may be self-medicating. So when they switch over to methadone, um, part of what it's doing may be improving their mood. Can we replace that with other SSRIs? Probably. And, but that would require, in order to do it gently so they don't experience huge, awful detox effects, um, flu-like symptoms, um, it needs to be done gradually. And most of us have worked with clients, or let me rephrase that, it's rare in my experience, to work with clients who try an antidepressant the first time and the dose and the antidepressant is the exact right one. So what we're doing with the methadone potentially is figuring out, okay, what is it that you need and how can we best help you do this and letting the, the SSRI build up in the person's system because we know it takes four to six weeks. Buprenorphine as opposed to methadone, which is a full agonist, is a partial agonist. So no matter how much buprenorphine people take, it could be very um, problematic But in, in terms of health-wise. But after they take a certain amount, if they take more, it's not going to get them any more euphoric, if you will. It has a ceiling level. It's going to get you this certain level of relaxation, but it's not going to get you high, and there's just no way around it. With gabapentin, we talked about that a few minutes ago. When we're thinking about physical dependence, and that's what we're talking about for a lot of people's concern about addiction, but physical dependence can develop with gabapentin, and people can experience withdrawal effects from gabapentin for up to 45 days. It's not a panacea either. There are no perfect solutions. What we need to look at is... 
what is going to help this person have the highest quality of life possible. And methadone has a lot, and other medication-assisted therapies, have a lot of drawbacks. And one of the things we're going to talk about towards the end of the presentation is how we can help clients learn to live with those side effects if this is the only way right now that they can figure out how to manage their pain and or their craving. The review of terms real quick. An agonist is a medication that binds with the brain's receptors and produces opioid-like effects. Methadone, morphine, fentanyl, heroin. Those are all agonists, full agonists, so they can, you know, go, go the full gamut and people can get high off of them. Partial agonists have that ceiling. So it'll get you to, to a point of relaxation and contentment, but it's not going to get people... High, high. Uh, antagonists and are medications that block receptors and prohibit opioid-like effects. And this is your naloxone. This is the medication that we give to reverse an opioid overdose. Naloxone, interestingly, is also used in Vivitrol for alcohol cessation. Just being aware of that. These drugs are used for alcohol and opioids. Street and painkiller opioids, you know, your meth... Most of your agonists are short-acting. They get into your system and they get out in a really, in a couple of hours. Medication-assisted therapy is long-acting. The half-life is right around 15 hours, which is why people only have to dose once. However, the analgesic effects of methadone, if they're taking, if somebody's taking it for pain relief, the analgesic effects are only about four or five hours. So the relaxation and the other effects tend to last you know a full day once they take it once methadone does not create a pleasurable or euphoric feeling from mu receptor mu receptor activation it can help people feel calmer and more relaxed but when it's used as prescribed people are not going to get euphoric the medications used in medication assisted therapy to reduce cravings prevent withdrawal and help normalize brain function so that people can focus on developing the healthy thought and behavior patterns that will sustain recovery generally if somebody is going to be maintained on methadone or any other medication assisted therapy for longer than two years the prescribing physician has to make a case, if you will, um, with the supervising authorities, the drug regulatory authorities, to support why this person needs to be on for more than two years. Generally, medication-assisted therapy is not supposed to go past two years, except for in cases um, where there is some unusual reason. Medication-assisted therapy provides individuals a taper of long-acting opioid medications as a way to wean them off of stronger opioids such as heroin. It's going to help them ease down and back off. Think about if you've ever tried to quit smoking. It's kind of like, you know, taking away one cigarette a day, if you will, for, you know, over the course of weeks. So it doesn't feel as like as much of a jolt to your system. It also gives the brain time to rebalance in a little bit more slower, gentler manner. A minimum of 12 months is required for methadone maintenance to be effective. This taper goes slowly, generally. If they do it quickly, the person experiences a lot of side effects, flu-like side effects mainly, and fatigue and rebound pain. So it's important that if a person wants to 
try medication-assisted therapy, they need to commit for, for at least a full year. Benefits of medication-assisted therapy. It reduces overdose risk. If somebody is getting the edge taken off, if you will, of their cravings, of their depression, of their anxiety, whatever it is that prompted them to use, then they're less likely to use something illicit that is less controlled. It improves the chance of survival, reduces the risk of relapse, improves retention and treatment for an adequate period of time to address those biopsychosocial issues we talked about, reduce criminal activity associated with substance use disorders if they're not having to steal in order to get money to buy whatever it is they wanted to buy on the street, which can be really expensive, then they're not going to have to engage in that criminal activity. Reduce negative health outcomes, including HIV and hepatitis, and improved birth outcomes among addicted pregnant women. Now, women will be maintained on methadone throughout their pregnancy. They've found that terminating uh, methadone or um, Opioid use suddenly while a woman is pregnant can cause uh, miscarriage. So generally, when the babe, when the woman is pregnant, she will be maintained on a level of methadone that is adequate to sustain her. And then it's up to the physician after she gives birth whether she continues to be maintained on it or not. Stigma is typically a social process characterized by um let me answer this question. Will the baby need methadone? The baby goes through, unfortunately, methadone withdrawal. The baby's not, I, I know of no cases where the baby is ever given methadone. But yes, the baby will go through methadone withdrawal as soon as it's born. Uh, so stigma is a social process characterized by exclusion, rejection, blame, or devaluation that results from an adverse social judgment about a person or a group. The presence of stigma leads to ongoing discrimination and marginalization with a detrimental effect for clients, families, and communities, including decreased self-esteem, increased isolation and vulnerability, and a reduced likelihood for service access. Why am I talking about stigma? Because there is a huge stigma associated with medication-assisted therapy. There's a stigma in 12-step groups or some 12-step groups. There's a stigma among many clinicians. There's a stigma among many doctors. So people who, are, who would benefit from medication-assisted therapy may not seek it out because of the associated stigma. Which brings us to associative stigma, is the process of being stigmatized due to having a close association with a person who is stigmatized. So pe people who are clinicians at methadone clinics may be stigmatized and looked down upon by clinicians who don't work there because they work in, quote, one of those clinics. Um, as if the clinician or the significant other that's associated with the person using medication-assisted therapy is somehow tainted by the relationship. We need to get past this. If we want to help people find recovery once they've already gotten addicted to opioids, we need to figure out how to help them get off of them. Questions to ask when you're doing an assessment with a person. When do they start using opioids? What benefit are they getting from the opioids? The best way to figure out a good treatment plan for them is to figure out what the benefit is. Is it an antidepressant? Is it anti-anxiety? Do the opioids provide pain relief or and any combination of any of these things. Does it help improve their sleep? Which, when we have enough sleep and we're well-rested, we tend to have less anxiety, depression, and pain. Does it increase their confidence level? I've had 
patients tell me that before or increase their energy levels had patients tell me that before now if you know that methadone and opioids act on the glutamate receptors which are is our main excitatory neurochemical then you might start going hmm that person may have insufficient glutamate for some reason and the opioids are increasing it for them we don't know exactly why but we can understand that there is a neurochemical basis to it other questions we want to ask does the person have access to health care they need to be physically healthy we need to help them get physically healthy in order to you know live their highest quality of life what is the state of the person's health right now are they in relatively good health do they have a lot of chronic pain do they have hepatitis what's going on what's the client's mental health history and we want to look at mood as well as addictive disorders because remember opioids are often co-occurring with other substance addictions and opioids have a high concurrence with people in people who have depression anxiety or PTSD because they it is a glutamate and SSRI um, agonist we want to know what the client's goals for for therapy are and what is their perception of treatment what do you think is going to happen some clients think they're just going to come in they're going to dose and they're going to leave uh-uh that ain't the way it goes clients are required to participate in counseling of some sort now some places um, run a little flat fast and loose with what they define as counseling for the clients they're they're more interested in the number of people they can pump in and out which you know really irritates me but good counseling will address help them address their biopsychosocial issues and making participation in the program contingent upon getting their meds contingent upon participating in counseling and staying clean is one of the best ways to increase um, success rates now when we talk about counseling though we also do need to look about barriers to treatment barriers to them getting to counseling and figure out how to help them work around that we'll talk about that in a minute we want to ask about prior treatment history what's worked what hasn't and we want to talk about treatment not only for their opioid use but also for um, depression anxiety any co-occurring issues they may have does the person have safe stable housing you know think about Maslow's hierarchy we need to make sure that they are getting their basic biological needs met do they have access to food adequate income what is contributing to this person's stress right now most people when they come into a clinic are not there and feeling just on top of the world they have things that are contributing to stress and we know that stress can lead to relapse who are the healthy social supports in the person's life and what factors had an effect on this person's early life you know we want to look at early childhood trauma etc what are actual and perceived barriers to treatment for this person cultural barriers some cultures are not okay with the use of methadone and if the person happens to be in a 12-step program there can be a lot of stigma associated with using methadone now if you look back um, oh gosh it's on the infographic that I made his name's escaping me right now but one of the early proponents of methadone treatment was talking to bill w and the conversation basically went something like bill w said i wish we could find an analog of methadone to help people with alcoholism when their cravings are so 
inescapable in order to help them deal with those cravings so they can achieve sustained recovery. It was much more eloquent than that. But basically, Bill W. said, if this is going to help you get through this period where your cravings are just incredible and help you towards the process of recovery, then as long as it's prescribed by a doctor, yada, yada, good. You know, let's do what we need to do to help you be able to stay the course. Um, So cultural barriers. It can be other cultures. It can be religious issues, whatever. Economic barriers to treatment. This can be no coverage from insurance. Now, dosing is typically not super expensive. It's, you know, $8 to $15 per dose in general. But that adds up when you're doing it every single day, especially if you're making $8 an hour. Some insurance will cover methadone. Um, Others will not. It's just important to look at economic issues. You also have people who work, and they work jobs where they get paid hourly. And if they have to be at the methadone clinic and miss the first two hours of work, then that's going to negatively impact them financially. And economically, you know, we need to look at other issues like their ability to access transportation. Do they have a car? Can they afford gas? When I worked in in Florida, the people who would come to the methadone clinic would sometimes drive in from an hour and a half away. That's a lot of gas for anybody to do, you know, three hours round trip every single day. Um, What are their finances like and insurance? What are their um, emotional barriers to treatment? Are there any? Do they have... um, suspicion about the process are they anxious is there some contraindication mood wise for them to be on methadone what are their psychiatric issues and other addictions this will have to go into a comprehensive treatment plan for somebody to be able to be treatment compliant and stick with the program we need to make sure we're addressing their biopsychosocial issues? Is there stigma associated with it? If their significant others are not on board, then they may feel like they've got to sneak around or it's not worth it. We may need to do some advocacy and education. Let's talk real quick about depression. Our endogenous opioid system, our natural made opioids, are involved in controlling feelings of pain, stress, anxiety, hopelessness, and pleasure and regulating levels of other neurotransmitters. When dopamine goes up, endogenous opioids typically go up. Dopamine is the go-seek-it chemical, and the opioids are the let's-do-that-again chemical. Opioids, interestingly, are a system depressant, even though they activate glutamate, and can increase depression in some people. In other people, the opioids may have the opposite effect. Treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, impacts 10 to 20% of people with depression. So they've tried a gamut of SSRIs and tricyclics, and it's just, it's not working. Methadone and buprenorphine are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like a lot of your SSRIs, and it also acts on the mu opioid receptor and the glutamate receptor. Sometimes this is what people need to get them out of that trough. Um, Ketamine is another drug that's not an opioid that also acts on the mu opioid receptors and the glutamate receptors. And we've talked before about the fact that ketamine is now being used for acutely suicidal 
um, patients. Ketamine has a lower risk of respiratory depression and a lower affinity for mu opioid receptors than the opioids do. So it's not mu opioid receptors are the ones that allow people to have that euphoric feeling. Ketamine's not real crazy about them. It goes more towards the glutamate. Ketamine is the preferred treatment for a fast-acting antidepressant. They say it works between 20 minutes and an hour. People see substantial relief from their depression. Buprenorphine has shown great potential for use as an antidepressant. For some people who traditional SSRIs and tricyclics don't work, buprenorphine may be an option because it um, activates, you know, those um, mu opioid receptors as well as the glutamate receptors. Some people are not crazy about going there. Heightened clinician awareness of the possibility of serotonin toxicity or serotonin syndrome is vital among patients taking opioids and other serotogenic medications. If they're taking opioids, you know, even stuff from the dentist, and they're taking antidepressants, those medications work together synergistically and can increase serotonin too high, causing life-threatening serotonin syndrome. So the doctor really needs to monitor levels really carefully. Anxiety. Deficiencies in the opioid system can also contribute to anxiety and reduced serotonin. Opioid receptors and opioids themselves also play a role in stress and anxiety. The endogenous opioid system, the natural opioid system, boosts the effects of the benzos. So you're going, okay. So if people take benzodiazepines, if they take anti-anxiety medications, then our natural opioids increase their effectiveness. So if they take um, anti-anxiety medications and they take, you know, prescribed opioids, they may also work synergistically. Now, the problem here is they work synergistically too well. It is life-threatening to combine op- opioids and benzodiazepines. It's, you know, really, really bad mojo. Um, some parts of this opioid system uh, can actually increase anxiety. And anxiety is also one of the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Now, if you remember, you're like, well, does it increase or decrease it? It depends on the person. Serotonin's the same way. High levels of serotonin can actually increase anxiety, um, and low levels of serotonin can increase depression. Too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Buprenorphine aug- augmentation has also been effective in improving symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorder compared to placebo. Just figured I'd throw that in there um, because you may see it being used a little bit more. Long-term use of opioids, including methadone, either illicitly or for therapeutic purposes, has profound effects on the perception of pain. Pain tolerance goes down because we are supercharging our opioid system and numbing things out. So then when that wears off, what would be a normal pain to us prior to using the opioids is now excruciating. We're so much more sensitive. Um, It's important that people understand that as they're coming off of opioids, as they're tapering, they may experience greater pain sensitivity for a period of time. Gabapentinoids, tricyclic antidepressants, and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors are the first-line agents for treating neuropathic pain. Um, Gabapentinoids are used for neuropathic pain. We know this. And then you've got these two different categories of antidepressants. You're not seeing an opioid in the bunch. This is our first line 
agent for treating neuropathic pain. Tramadol and other opioids are recommended as second-line agents. Interestingly, the new uh, guidelines are showing that cannabinoids are newly recommended as third-line agents. They come ahead of uh, methadone and Botox as fourth-line agents. Methadone blocks the euphorogenic effects of short-acting opioids. This blockade can be overcome when higher than normal doses of short-acting agonists are used or in, there's increases in methadone dosing. So people can get high on it if they are taking methadone, but then they also use a bunch of oxy or something. Methadone is relatively ineffective with neuropathic pain. So there are only certain types of pain methadone's even going to be helpful with, which is another reason it's a fourth-line agent. Clients receiving um, methadone maintenance therapy often require higher and more frequent doses of opioid analgesics to achieve pain control due to cross-tolerance to different medications within the opioid class. They become tolerant to, you know, opioids in the, in the methadone class, if you will. So then if they start taking a short-acting um, painkiller like OxyContin, then they may need more of it because they're already, their body's already used to having the, the uh, opioid in there. Obviously, we don't prescribe, so this is not super relevant, but we do want to be aware of the fact that there are very tricky issues in dealing with chronic pain or even acute pain when somebody's on methadone and then they have to go for oral surgery or they get into a car accident dealing with their pain is going to be um, much different than dealing with somebody who's not taking methadone. And it's important for them to alert their physician about the fact that they're on methadone so they can get adequate pain control. Up to half of patients with PTSD and up to 95% of people suffering from traumatic brain injuries develop chronic pain. PTSD is strongly associated with opioid use and abuse. PTSD and Traumatic brain injury often co-occur and have amplify overlapping symptoms. When people use opioids, you're thinking, well, why would people use opioids? Uh, Well, they may start using opioids because of PTSD. Whatever happened was physically traumatic and they had pain. Or they developed psychosomatic pain. I don't know. However, the use of the opioids provides temporary relief from PTSD symptoms, including arousal and the depression and apathy by increasing serotonin and dopamine. And it may decrease um, agitation and that sense of hypervigilance by decreasing decreasing respiration by binding with opioid receptors in the brainstem. It slows everything down so they don't feel as anxious. Um, Interestingly, though, in 2012... Uh, was the height of the VA's prescribing of opioid painkillers, and it also was the time when there was the highest rate of veteran suicide. So obviously, the opioids may have been masking something, um, but we do want to be careful about people who are on um, medication-assisted therapy and suicidality. Supporting patients on medication-assisted therapy. Federal law requires patients who receive treatment in an uh, opiate treatment from an opiate treatment provider, receive medical counseling, vocational, educational, and other assessment and treatment services in addition to prescribed medication. I've seen some really wonderful programs for this. The one in Gainesville is awesome. Um, I've also seen some others, typically in your um, dispensing clinics for things like um, 
for, for Suboxone, where there's not as much emphasis on counseling. The six-month retention rates for opioid therapy, medication-assisted therapy, seldom exceed 50%, and there are poor outcomes following dropout. So we need to explore innovative strategies for enhancing retention in buprenorphine treatment. Access difficulty. If they have to show up at 5.30 in the morning to dose, that might be too difficult. Or if they have to be at work at 7 o'clock and the dosing is not the right time. If they have unsupportive living environments, if we are not doing a good assessment and paying attention to co-occurring disorders, if there is expense that they have to shoulder for repeated doctor visits or dosing with no insurance, and just the time required for clinic visits. I remember at the clinic opened at 5 o'clock in the morning, and people would start getting there at 4.15 to line up for dosing, and it would be a long process. Risks for medication-assisted therapy toxicity. If they have recent or ongoing use of benzodiazepines, I said earlier, I'll say it again, that is life-threatening. That is really bad mojo. We want to make sure that the benzos are out of their system. If they're using other sedating drugs, including things that are mildly sedating and mildly sedating herbs like um, valerian or uh, melatonin or... uh, I can't think of others right now, but it's important if they're using anything else that's sedating, it could increase toxicity. If they have a lower opioid tolerance, I'm a lightweight. The doctor will prescribe, you know, two pills every four to six hours. If I take half of one pill every six hours, I'm all but drooling on myself. I'm just like, okay, you know, that's, that's plenty. Um, if the person has alcohol abuse or dependency, that increases their risk of toxicity. Um, they can't feel, they don't feel as drunk when they're drinking alcohol when they're on methadone, so they can tend to drink too much, um, and then it also affects methadone levels. If they're greater than 60 years old, the liver does not clear medication-assisted therapy products out as efficiently. If they have severe or unstable liver disease, regardless of age, then again, their liver's not able to clear that stuff out as effectively. Um, Respiratory illnesses such as COPD and asthma can increase the risk of bad side effects, if you will, for medication-assisted therapy because a lot of these opioid medications tend to suppress respiration a little bit. So if people are already having problems breathing and oxygenating, that can be bad. Any drugs that inhibit methadone metabolism can be a problem. Using Eating grapefruit or drinking grapefruit juice and even using essential oil of grapefruit has been shown to potentially increase um, methadone levels. If somebody misses a dose, they can have a decrease in tolerance because your tolerance to opioids goes down really quickly once you quit taking them. Or if they're in early stabilization where we're not sure exactly how much the person needs, then if the doctor goes a little too high, then there's a higher risk for toxicity. Factors impacting medication, opioid use, how much they've been using, how long they've been using, gives us an idea about, or gives the doctor an idea about where to start. Um, the route of opioid use, if they're using it orally, it's they're getting less of it in their system than if they're using it intravenously. If they are a polysubstance abuser, then that will impact how much methadone they need to be prescribed. The age of the client, as we talked about a minute ago, other pathologies such as liver or kidney disease, both of those filter out waste, genetic factors, 
and interestingly pregnancy when people are pregnant they met metabolize methadone as much as twice as fast so a lot of times people who are pregnant needs need to dose twice a day in order to maintain um, their levels without starting to experience withdrawal in response to your question about how did grapefruit juice um, or grapefruit produces that effect it causes the body to not metabolize the methadone as quickly it slows down the metabolization therefore the levels stay higher so when they go take their next dose then they're actually you know getting more than they should side effects of medication assisted therapy mood changes and these can be different we want to watch somebody who starts um, any sort of MAT immediately after switching to MAT they're going from some uncontrolled dose to a controlled dose but it's going to be less than what they were getting on the street therefore they're not only are they going to experience some withdrawal side effects you know they're going to feel a little bit hinky but they also may have mood changes because of the um, altered stimulation of their glutamate and their serotonin system three to six months after starting mat um, i theoretically they're on a relatively stable dose at that point and they are addressing biopsychosocial issues but that may trigger mood changes that are completely unrelated to their medication level and then six months after starting medication assisted therapy people can also start having more mood changes so we do want to watch in each of these three phases knowing that there are different triggers for mood changes in each when you get to towards the end of treatment people start developing high levels of anxiety about whether they're going to be able to stay clean if they're not dosing every day other side effects headache you know they need to talk to their doctor if the headaches are bothersome um, there's not much as clinicians we can really suggest for that dizziness and blurred vision due to alterations in neurotransmitters definitely a problem we want to make sure that they're not driving until they know how the medication affects them we want to assess any impairments caused by diz dizziness such as like i said driving their ability to walk stairs their ability to exercise um, and carrying an infant you know if you think about walking around with a with a baby in your hands if you suddenly get dizzy and fall out you know the infants at risk so we need to help you know caregivers figure out if you're on methadone how can you best you know make sure that that baby is safe I'm not saying not to be on methadone if you've got an infant I'm saying you need to be cognizant of the fact that you're going to be a little potentially be a little unsteady have clients monitor their blood pressure and heart rate if their blood pressure goes too low if then they and they become hypotensive they also may faint or get really dizzy and their heart rate if it goes too low then they may not be oxygenating enough which will contribute to dizziness and blurred vision and all of those all of that data needs to be reported to the attending physician drowsiness can happen due to alterations in neurotransmitters you know serotonin makes as used to make melatonin helps us get to sleep yada yada um, opioids also reduce cortisol levels so cortisol is our fight-or-flight chemical and it's the one that helps us get out of bed in the morning because you know we're raring to go and then it decreases throughout the day when it's at its lowest we go to sleep well opioids reduce cortisol levels so people may have a premature dip in their cortisol which can lead to feelings of sleepiness sleep changes and can also contribute to drowsiness we want to 
assess sleep quality and quantity and inadequate respiration when people are taking opioids they tend to be more sedated so a lot of times they're not breathing deeply i mean most of us don't breathe deeply very often which is why we yawn if people are starting to feel sleepy or preferably even before it they should try deep breathing throughout the day to make sure they're staying oxygenated sexual impotence and decreased libido affects 30 to 40 percent of people on medication assisted therapy see i said it wasn't a perfect solution um, and this is due to lowered sex hormones especially testosterone clients may have difficulty in their relationships because of this with their self-esteem because of this and even remaining treatment compliant because of this we need to address it we know that when people are on antidepressants and they have this problem that they have difficulty maintaining compliance it's really not any different here now trexone remember that's your agonist that is used for alcohol and it's also in when somebody gets the buprenorphine naltrexone combination which is trade named suboxone um naltrexone can produce anhedonia and reduced libido decreased lubri lubrication and anorgasmia in women um, if for women who are having sexual side effects from uh, medication assisted therapy they may need to consider changing their birth control regimen um, and for men they may need to consider seeing their doctor both of them may benefit from some sort of hormone replacement therapy osteoporosis is a common side effect due to endocrinopathy and I'm not going to go into the big details of that right now we do need to educate our patients that if they're on methadone for a long time that osteoporosis is potentially a problem they need to engage in weight-bearing activities make sure they're you know getting a good quality diet and talk to their doctor about other preventative measures dry mouth and constipation I'm gonna put them both together because when we get dehydrated we also get constipated but because opioids slow down the system people may get constipated have them carry a water bottle with them that will help remind them to drink so they're drinking more often throughout the day um, encourage them to exercise exercise not only stimulates our desire to drink part especially if we've got a water bottle right there but it also gets our system going and it can help move things along if you will if they've got dry mouth they can also use a dry mouth rinse they have they sell them at you know big box stores that you can go to sleep disruption we want to look at sleep hygiene some people have a lot of difficulty at first sleeping on a normal schedule whatever their issues are we want to help them look at that because remember we are monkeying with the serotonin system <clears throat> difficulty concentrating it can be hard if you've taken opioids before it can be you know how hard it can be to kind of compose your thoughts sometimes especially if you're you know on medic medication assisted therapy so you're not getting the euphoria you're not feeling horrible but you're also dealing with all the stuff they've got to deal with in recovery you can imagine that all the stress and everything that's going on with them it's going to be hard to concentrate encourage them to take notes and plan ahead now at this point in time they are in a sort of mini crisis sort of situation and we want to help them recognize that a lot of energy it takes a lot of energy to recover and as their brain rebalances you know different things are going to happen some days are going to be better than others just take notes plan ahead reduce distractions when you need to focus encourage them to take frequent breaks sometimes chunking things in 15 or 20 minute segments is easier 
Encourage them to practice good time management and to stay organized. Now, they may need help from a counselor figuring out how to take all, all this stuff and dump all of their um, responsibilities for life into this mix and come up with a schedule. But, you know, that's certainly something we can do. Less common side effects of medication-assisted therapy include suicidal ideation, hallucinations, paranoia, and delusions. Just be on the lookout for those. Other issues that clients may face include family judgment. We talked about that some earlier. A lot of families perceive medication-assisted therapy as swapping one drug for another. Well, it kind of is and it kind of isn't. Yes, you're swapping one thing that you ingest with another thing that you ingest. One gives you a sense of euphoria and a high and, you know, it's uncontrolled and it could be, you could die from it. The other is controlled. You can't get the euphoric, euphoric experience from it and it's helping you get through to the point that you've sustained recovery. And the best analogy that I can give most people who have issues with it is, you know, after you've had a surgery, for example, when do you want to leave the hospital right after you had the surgery with no medication and just grit through the whole recovery process? No, that would be unbearable and inhumane. Medication-assisted therapy is sort of the, a similar way for mental health issues. The medication-assisted therapy is what is used to help the person deal with the pain through the recovery process until they don't need it anymore. At work, people can experience judgment. There are some occupations that you cannot take methadone, and those would be your safety-sensitive occupations. There's just no way around it, and they have a special carve-out um, in the ADA and stuff. But the Americans with Disabilities Act and many state protections do protect workers who are taking a medication, as, a legal medication as prescribed by their doctor for a verifiable condition. Uh, Asking an employee or a prospective employee about legal drug use and or prescription medications is prohibited unless those special conditions are met. It's one of those occupations where you cannot use any sort of medications. Um, and employers may only ask about and or test for prescription medications when such inquiry is job-related and consistent with business necessity, not just because they want to. Methadone has higher treatment retention rates than buprenorphine naloxone does, and that's the um, trade name Suboxone. While buprenorphine naloxone has a lower risk of overdose, for all patient groups, physicians should recommend methadone or buprenorphine naloxone treatment over abstinent-based treatment, according to the guidelines. Now, I have worked with a lot of people and talked to a lot of people over the course of many, many years, and some people say that the detox from the medication-assisted therapy is worse than the detox from the heroin or the fentanyl. Um, and part of that, my suspicion is, because the medication-assisted therapy, like I said, is a longer-acting medication. Therefore, where the opioids, street opioids, would get out of their system in a couple of hours, and then they'd be recovering, the longer-acting opioids take longer to get out of their brain and out of their system and take longer to reset. Therefore, um, and I've seen people wean off of it without much problem because the doctor does it very, very slowly and, and gently. Um, but there are not a lot of doctors that are willing to do it that slowly and gently. A lot of times, the stuff that, when I hear that from clients, it's clients who have 
dropped out of treatment or been kicked out of treatment because of noncompliance and they didn't get the slower, gentler detox. And yeah, that can certainly be excruciating. Um, let's see. As far as the use of CBD oil, I didn't find anything in the research that indicated any level of clinical effectiveness with this particular population. However, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means it hasn't been studied. Because, yes, there's a lot of research out there that indicates that CBD oil can help with, um, like, arthritic pain and joint pain and those sorts of things. So it may be a good adjunct to take the edge off. However, CBD oil does affect the neurotransmitter sense systems. So just like if somebody was taking an antidepressant, they would need to be closely monitored to make sure they didn't develop serotonin syndrome. That would be my biggest fear about somebody using CBD oil concurrently with methadone or um, buprenorphine, naloxone. Are there any other questions? And like I said, um, there are a lot of clinics that do it right, and they've got really awesome, like six-month, IOP counseling programs, and they address the biopsychosocial issues, and yada, 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 and there are a lot of them that don't. Um, you tend to see more counseling in true methadone clinics as opposed to in places where doctors have gotten a permit to dispense um, the buprenorphine, um, buprenorphine naloxone combination, so I'd much rather see my person going to an OTP clinic. Alrighty, um, just for an aside, if you work with clients with dementia, I am, I may do it today, maybe tomorrow, uh, recording a episode of the Case Management Toolbox podcast on case management for clients with dementia, um, and I learned a whole lot of new stuff doing that because I don't typically work with that population, and then on Thursday, to kind of piggyback onto that, we're going to be talking about communicating with people with cognitive disabilities. If you want to find out which ones are the good clinics in your area, there are not many. Um, I can tell you in, in most places, especially full-blown methadone clinics, um, go visit the clinic. Ask for a tour. Most clinics are more, more than happy to give you a tour and let you see what they do and their facilities and their curriculum and all that kind of stuff. If they're not, that would give me pause um, if they're not willing to let another professional come tour. Yes, in the case management podcast, I do address the difference between dementia and the normal aging process uh, because sometimes people start normal aging and their loved ones freak out that they may be developing dementia because the person gets a little forgetful or is slower in um, finding their words, which I've noticed over the years I've gotten a little bit slower too. Oh, neat. Ashley says that where she is, they have a new ketamine clinic. Um, so I'll be interested to see some of the research from that. Um, hmm. That's unfortunate that they're making the ketamine very expensive because I know it's not. Um, my vet uses it when he's got to come out and do, in, do major procedures on the donkeys because it's basically a horse tranquilizer and uh, it ain't that expensive. So that's unfortunate. It's probably the fact that it has to be in those special nasal preparations or whatever. But um, remember, though, you can potentially go to the pharmaceutical company's website and go to the patient assistant program area and get waivers if the person is going to be on ketamine therapy for any period of time. 
and uh, they may be able to get patient assistance from the pharmaceutical company. Um, the doctor just has to sign a little form and fax it in. I'm not saying that that will necessarily happen, but it can't hurt to try if you've got a client who is it's not covered under um, insurance and they would definitely benefit from it what, to create that, quote, window of treatment. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.